Welcome to Live Talk, a weekly radio talk style show exclusively produced by Pituitary World News. Hello, everyone, and welcome. This is Live Talk. Uh, Dr. Lewis Blevins here with Pituitary World News. It's been an interesting week for me. I've seen a lot of very interesting patients and uh, and enjoy that process of medical decision-making and trying to sort out uh, issues and the best way to to deal with them for our patients. Uh, I'm joined today by my surgical colleague at UCSF, Dr. Sandeep Kunwar, who uh, is the eminent neurosurgeon, in, in my opinion, in the United States, if not the world. We've worked together now for about 15 years, and, uh, and I think we understand how one another thinks about cases and approach and can almost read one another's minds or predict what's going to happen when the patient uh, sees the, the, the other one of us. Uh, at least that's how I feel about it. Uh, at any rate, uh, Sandeep, welcome to the program today. Thank you very much, Lewis, and it's a pleasure uh, to be here with you. So appreciate you joining us. Um, what I'd like to talk about today is a little, a little bit about who you are as a neurosurgeon and how you think, uh, what guides your decision making, uh, and um, and then we can talk about some of the interesting things that you have maybe learned throughout your career as a physician. So why don't you start by telling us about your training and education? Yeah. So. So I'm Sandeep Kanwar, I'm a, I'm a neurosurgeon at UCSF and uh, the surgical coordinator for the uh, California Center for Pituitary Disorders. But I actually did my medical school training at UCSF. Uh, um, you know, I was always interested in brain tumors, and it's, one of, it's been one of the uh, uh, dominant places to do uh, not only training, but to do clinical trials and work on brain tumors. Uh, they have the largest brain tumor center in the United States, and we have several surgeons who focus on different types of brain tumors even because of the volume we have. So I thought it would be a good place to train. And although I thought about other things like cardiothoracic surgery and oncology, um, it all still always went back to brain tumors. And so I then did my residency at UCSF as well. And I was very fortunate at that time because I worked under Charlie Wilson, who uh, was a, really a Renaissance neurosurgeon and a, and a great technician, was actually featured in the New York on the front page as one of the physical geniuses of the world. Um, just because of his technical skills and his um, knowledge base and his demand for perfection, really, is what we learned as a resident. Um, and in some ways, it kind of definitely changed and morphed everyone who trained under him. But beyond that, he was a he was a superlative uh, uh, pituitary surgeon, really one of the dominant forces and definitely the top three in the world at, during his time. I'm not only showing him... Not to interrupt, but I want to say that uh, to our listeners out there, if you haven't seen that article... Yeah, from the New Yorker magazine, it's worth reading because it not only talks about Charlie Wilson and his dedication and his uh, application of his learning to to be a better surgeon. It also talks about Wayne Gretzky, which has very interesting comments about that and how he made his famous shot, just seeing something that was not previously seen by others. And I can't remember the third. I think they featured three people in that. Article. Yeah, the third person was actually Yo Yo Ma talking as a celloist. Ah, um, what an amazing okay. celloist he is, and. Each of these individuals, like many other people in their field, worked really hard to get to where they wanted to do, but yet they sort of excelled. You know, comparing uh, Wayne Gretzky in hockey, Yo-Yo Ma as a celloist, and, and Charlie Wilson as a surgeon, and specifically a neurosurgeon, and what really made them different. So it was a very interesting article, I agree. Worth reading. Yeah, definitely. So anyway, sorry to interrupt, so no, please continue. Yeah, so I, you know, Charlie Wilson was a, a, a superlative pituitary surgeon, and 
and I had the opportunity to train under him. And eventually, after winning his trust and, and understanding my technical skills, he passed on his practice to me, which was a great blessing. It's one of the reasons I stayed at UCSF to continue to work here as as a, as a attending neurosurgeon as well. And I always thought, you know, it's kind of like uh, you can learn how to do, um, you know, you can learn how to play uh, tennis from YouTube videos or learn how to play from Nadal, or you can learn how to become a, a master race car driver from Lewis Hamilton or from your local uh, race car uh, performer. And, and it makes such a huge difference when you have the opportunity to work with someone like Charlie Wilson to train under. You just start at a whole different level and, a, and a, the bar is set at a different standards. So that really gave me a huge running start when I entered into the field of pituitary uh, pathology. And, and with him and some of the people he worked with, including uh, you know the, the endocrinologist back then, um, uh, Bill Hoyt, who was a phenomenal neuro-ophthalmologist who said, did a lot of the groundbreaking work on, on the optic nerve. And to learn from them, really, not only was I able to get an understanding of surgery and its clinical endeavors and, and really be focused on you know, the, the patient more than anyone else, Charlie Wilson used to always say, whenever you're in doubt, do what's best for the patient and you'll never go wrong. And then that's been my driving force all these years. But also learn about endocrinology. And then, of course, with you, uh, um, got a really good handling of the endocrine component of it, the ophthalmological component of it, the radiation oncology, doing gamma knives uh, at UCSF. So really, it's really sort of helped to look at the disease, not as a single entity, but really everything around it and trying to figure out how best to treat patients. So can you feel and measure how Charlie affected your your approach to learning today? Uh, no, new, I, new pathophysiology, disease processes, surgical approaches. Do you feel like he planted those seeds of professionalism and then approach to learning and, and evaluating what you do and your outcomes and things of that nature? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think he started with the concept of what he proved is that you can do pituitary surgeries with very, very low complications. And, and we took that and drove it even further. I mean, you know, he had one of the lowest complication rates with the highest cure rates uh, at that time. And what we've done is made that even better. I mean, that was a driving force. One of the things he'd always comment and mention that's been a driving force for me is no matter how well we can do, how good we our performance is, we can always do better. And that's got to be the goal is to always do better. And so it was funny, even if I look at the first 500 surgeries I did versus the last 500 surgeries, you know, after about a certain point, after doing this for 10, 15 years, you think you've done everything you can do and you're at the top of the of the heap. But what's amazing is even now, I think our complication rates are even lower. What we can do is even more and you keep learning. Um, so that's what's actually exciting about medicine in general. You know, it's not a point where you get to a point where you can say, I'm done. There's always more to do. There's always more to learn. Not only just the pathophysiology, other tumor types that we can resect and, 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 and perform on. You know, if you look at even CSF leak rates, uh, you know, back then our CSF leak rates were less than 3%, which were great. And now they're less than 1%, which is even better. Mm -hmm. And that's partly with technical skill, partly with technology and then New Zealand's that we have. But that, that's kind of just an example of how we can keep pushing the limits. So what year did you take the baton, so to speak, or the crown, the king's crown from him for king of pituitary disorders at UCS? I had to pay my dues. For, for three years, I worked with him, uh, not getting paid, <laughs> just uh, working with him and doing my own practice. And so I was very busy. Not only was I was doing my, you know, couple hundred cases a year, I was doing his uh, hundred so pituitaries a year just oh, to keep wow. working with him. He wanted to make sure that as he handed it down, that I was the right person to do so. And it was in 2001 when he had some hand surgery done, and he's had it done before. Seven years earlier, he had hand surgery on his other hand, and he came back within two months of doing surgeries again. 
But this time, I think he just felt comfortable saying, that's it, and I'm not coming back. Um, and handed mm-hmm. it on in 2001, we took off. And it was just a few months after that, we actually changed our protocol right off the bat. Um, I spent some time um, with other surgeons and learning different techniques and different skill sets. And that's when we started switching from a sublabial approach, which is how we learned, how I learned, um, which is a mm-hmm. great operation, but went to an endonasal approach. So actually, it was in 2002, we stopped using nasal packing, patients started going home quicker, the recovery rates were much faster. And that was just like really the first uh, step we uh, did to change what he had done. And you know, it's a, at a point I realized what for him, even though I made comments during those two or three years I worked with him so closely that maybe we should try these. He just, he, although you know, it's hard to teach an old dog <laughs> new tricks, he just was fixing his set's ways of saying, hey, this is done. we've done so well with these operations, why change anything? And that's what you learn is that, you know, even you know, good is sometimes not good enough. You can always do better. Yeah. I didn't realize that you had that arduous exchange with him. There was a three-year period of working with him and and sort of uh, not only learning, but sort of gaining his trust in, in being able to take that program on. That's a yeah. that's a commitment. That's like a, that's like a fellowship while you're a faculty member, basically, right? It, so, it is, because I was doing 300 surgeries a year and not getting paid for any of the extra yeah. work that I was doing, and that was fine. Yes. And I love work. I love pituitary surgery. It's been my passion for so long, and it's just a great operation. And then I had so much respect for Charlie Wilson. It, you know, I never complained, never whined about it at all during that time. Um, but it's mm-hmm. uh, he, as you know, he he always demanded perfection, and anything less than that, that's you know, there was an era. We always used to talk in the old eras of neurosurgery where we did work 100 hours a week. Um, there was a, someone usually fired almost every year for set, either fired or left the program and training for seven years in a row. And that's always because of his high demand of, of, of you know, wow. what, what he wanted from his residents and training. He never wanted someone to leave the program that wasn't at 100%. That's sort of what you want, right? Yeah. Uh, if you're going to do brain surgery, you need someone who has that devotion, dedication to learning and doing it right. Yeah. So like I was reading an article recently about uh, Air Force pilot training. As you know, I wanted to become a fighter pilot. And uh, there was a, a young man talking about in his training squadron, there was a pilot and an instructor killed on approach to the runway. And after that happened, said people started as they're flying into land, they would see the crash site and about four of his classmates quit because of that experience. And, and he said a lot of people thought the Air Force would say, no, no, stay, stay. But they don't want anybody in who can't sort of pass the muster and recognize that that's just a uh, one of the things that has to has to happen or will happen in that level of work, and uh, sort of like they they recognize that if people are selecting against being a good fighter pilot if they leave the program as a consequence of such a thing, sort of like neurosurgery training in a way, you know, both very intense life and death decisions and things like that. Yeah, the one thing that you know, unfortunately for some surgeons. We talk about this is and there's no question every bad outcome has a huge effect on us and sometimes we do everything the right way but the outcome may not be what we expected but in general it's different for airline pilots because it's their life on the line and for us mm-hmm. you know people argue well it's not our life it's someone else's life but you know for that said to be a good surgeon you, it's really your life on the line and you have to think of it that way which is why unfortunately sometimes there is some variability um you know in, in, in how people perform and what they uh, pursue after mm-hmm. there have been several examples of that in the last decade or so um the other issue is i think 
you know, with the trading, I think this is where um, a lot of the you know, there's a lot of great programs, but the bar is set so high. Again, if you've got Lewis Hamilton, mm-hmm. who's done so much and so well with you know Formula One racing, who can drive 220 miles per hour and never crash, not even once in the last 10 years, his bar is set very differently than you know the guy who mm-hmm. races at Laguna Beach and and you know has crashed a couple of cars. <laughs> For him, he can do a good job. Yeah. But Lewis Hamilton can do a phenomenal job. And that's what Charlie really yeah. did is he set the bar so high. And, and, and if he, his philosophy was is if, you could, if one person can do it, everybody should be able to do it. And you're right. Those who mm-hmm. can't then maybe shouldn't be in the program. Well, I'm delighted that we're doing the nasal approaches. I, I was trained in it here at Hopkins, and in my first couple faculty jobs were all uh, the sublabel approaches. And it really it, your approach really does shorten the hospital stay from about five to seven days down to one. And rarely, too, most of our patients are discharged after one night in the hospital. So it's a tremendous advance in the procedure. It's I, I think of it as minimally, minimally invasive surgery. A lot of people think that an endoscopic approach to a pituitary is minimally invasive. It's actually maximally invasive of the two procedures, in my opinion, and, uh, and really appreciate the fact that people have uh, less synonasal uh, morbidity as a as a consequence of the procedure that you do. So that was 2001. So you've been really at the helm of the, of the pituitary program at UCSF for 21 years now, almost 22 years. Yeah. Uh, that's a good bit of time. It's been a good runway. And a Probably. Of, yeah. One of the biggest uh, changes of course that recently happened is, you know, the development of the CCPD and that really was up to, you know, a, a big, uh, Shout out to you, Lewis, is to try to build that up and get going. That was a big, huge tick up in the volume of cases we did, and the, uh, again, the quality of follow up we had for patients. You know, when we that's one of the, mm-hmm. the biggest challenges is we have patients from, you know, all over the U.S., all over from Hong Kong, uh, Chile, Mexico. To follow these patients is very challenging, and to have this uh, the infrastructure of, of what we have now. You can manage patients in the other locations, and so that mm-hmm. you know, as a surgeon, I focus on what I need to do at that time and get the patient through and cure the tumor if we can, and, and preserve all the function. But of course, there's a whole follow-up component to it that needs to be done as well. And, and I think now we've kind of, you know, have have a program that really can uh, do both the preoperative, the intraoperative, and now the postoperative care uh, very effectively. Yeah, I I think it just it's a great formula to to have an endocrinologist and neurosurgeon working close together. Yeah. Uh, to manage these patients. You're doing what you love to do and not having to do my job. And I'm doing what I love to do. And of course, I couldn't do your job. But, uh, you know, it's nice to sort of uh, uh, share those responsibilities and communicate together. And, and of course, now we have a, tr- a tremendous group of uh, people that work on our team, including our administrative assistant, uh, another half-time administrative assistant who also works on authorizations and and a full-time nurse practitioner and a full-time nurse. So we all work together to share those responsibilities. That's our core team. And then of course that extends to neuroradiology, neuroophthalmology, neuroanesthesia, yeah. neuropathology, and others who, who help us care for our patients at UCSF. Uh, so it's nice to have a, a good team and a network of people that, uh, that are good at, uh, good at managing pituitary cases. Definitely. Our volume is probably, we, we are, the, I think, the busiest pituitary center in the country as far as surgical volume is concerned, and maybe as far as outpatient visits are concerned as well. Um, 
So we need the team. <laughs> we need the, the large team. But because of being as busy, one of the things I often joke to our patients about is even our environmental services people that clean your hospital room know about pituitary disease. <laughs> so I had, I had one of them who used to work in the clinic. He said, Dr. Blevins, I think you have a patient with acromegaly in the waiting room. <laughs> and I hadn't met that patient yet. And he'd already decided that that was a diagnosis. So yeah, it's true. Even our yeah. yeah, it's kind of uh, interesting to have a group of people who are used to seeing pituitary disorders working together. Yeah, and, and the program's gotten big enough now where we have, as you know, you know, other other surgeons working with us to to help round out the program because we really wanted to be, you know, inclusive and even it got to my to a point where I could do as many as I can, and now we've got you know other individuals who can do a very good job as well. And we're expanding it to other lesions, not just pituitaries. Um, you know, the operation itself is, is you know, a technical operation, but can be applied to different uh, disease pathologies. And I think UC's done a really, one of the other things I, I liked about and why I stayed here was not only because of Charlie Wilson, but because they recognize that, you know, you know there's a very internal referral mechanism that's set up because, you know, in general, pituitary surgeries, pituitary pathologies are not that common, meaning compared to like back disease or, you know, headaches and things like that. And if you split it, among, split it up amongst a lot of surgeons, if you're talking about 50 cases a year and splitting them up by three or four, they all are doing just a few cases. Whereas right. at UC, we've always had, you know, the buy-in. And that's what I think why we have so much expertise in subspields is that if one of my colleagues, you know, my chairman or one of my other colleagues sees a pituitary tumor, they'll pass it on to me because, you know, that's ideally how a subspecialty care program should work. And because of that, as you know, we not only do we have, you know, five neurosurgeons who do brain tumor work, they actually specialize in certain types of brain tumors. Like I specialize mm -hmm. in pituitary pathologies. You have someone who specializes in, in meningiomas, someone who specializes in middle fossa or posterior fossa uh, tumors which is kind of unique, but that's kind of how we built it out. Um, and, and to a point, even our pediatric uh, uh, surgeons, you know, even though, you know, I'm not a pediatric neurosurgeon, we all realize that the operation of going through the nose and doing a transmodal surgery, the, 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 the limitations, the risks, the, the anatomy that we need to be careful about is the same whether you're an adult or whether you're four years old or, or three years old. And so that, uh, uh, you know, what we've done is we've come and combined. So I do all the pituitary surgeries in, in children. I work with the pediatric neurosurgeons, mm -hmm. but they recognize they do three or four a year. And since, you know, whether we, as an adult or a child, the, the techniques used are the same. Pathologies, slightly different, um, with more craniopharyngiomas, but they also get pituitary adenomas. But the focus is always what's best for the patient. And mm -hmm. so it's worked out really well in that regards. And you're operating on about 12 to 15 children a year, or is it more than that now? It's, a, it's more. It's about 15 to 20 kids a year that we operate on, um, and it's becoming a bigger referral center for pediatric pathology. Um, again, it's very, you know, it's not very common other than craniopharyngiomas, but pituitary adenomas, Cushing's disease are quite devastating uh, to, to mm -hmm. the pediatric population. And, of course, prolactinomas we, do, we see a, a fair number of. We've had a few cases of gigantism this last year, um, which are you know really interesting cases. Um, but again, the, the the fundamental treatment still relies on surgery, and mm -hmm. again, we they realize the numbers is what makes a big difference in regards to outcome and safety. And so, what they do is they bring me over to the pediatric hospital. We've got everything set up there to be able to do the surgeries there. But that philosophy doesn't always exist everywhere. You know, the pediatric guys want to do right. more surgeries, even if they're only doing three or four a year, they're going to do it, which doesn't make sense. 
you know, I even though I'm doing 12 or 15, you know, 15 to 20 cases a year at the pediatric hospital, we're still doing, you know, 150 a year at the adult hospital. And so that mm-hmm. really helps to, you know, um, provide that technical expertise. Yeah, you're, you're certainly doing the lion's share of work at our hospital. I think we're doing about 250 cases a year, just so our listeners know we have Mini Shaggy, uh, who does uh, probably the second most cases of all of our pituitary surgeons. He does a great job. And then we also have a new addition to our program, Easy Goldschmidt, who uh, is very well trained. He looks like he's a tremendous surgeon as well as the yeah. rest of you are, and he's doing good work, mainly focusing on skull-based tumors and endoscopic surgery. And then uh, we have Phil Theodosophilus, who's still doing a few cases, but not many at the t- at the present time. And then at Marin, we have Tarun Aurora, who also does a reasonably good job with uh, pituitary cases there. So I don't have a problem with him operating on the people that are referred to him out of Marin. So it's a big program. Uh, you're still doing the lion's share of it, but we do see a lot of uh, a lot of cases come through this institution and. It's interesting when I have patients referred to the practice that are not attached to a referring to a neurosurgeon as a target at our institution. I try to pick and choose the best surgeon for that patient. You know, yeah. so there are a couple, couple of patients that I've seen that I, I knew that you would probably refer to Easy, so yeah. I referred them to him, yeah. and one or two that you'd probably send to Manish, and I've sent those to him as well. So, yeah. uh, but I think most of them do come your way. Um, <clears throat> How many cases do you think you've done all together now? Are you over 3,000? Not quite. We're at a little over 2,800. Um, so over these... Okay. Uh, so I knew you were getting close. 20 years. Yeah, getting close. Maybe another couple of years we'll hit the break yeah. the 3,000 mark. Um, and then, you know, I, I, what's surprising is at some point you think, okay, I've learned everything I can learn. I've done everything I can do. It's still... And I don't say... I don't think... The, I will say the, the learning curve is definitely plateaued, meaning I, I think every... You know, the differences I notice is the last 500 cases look different than my first 500 cases. That's where, mm-hmm. you know, uh, things just continue to get better. But what's amazing, despite I was talking to a patient today, I've probably seen over 4,000 MRI, pituitary MRI scans, which is why I never look at radiology reports. And we've had two patients today, and Marie will tell you, our nurse practitioner, about uh, discussions about why the radiologist mistook what they saw for what they saw and why they did that and uh, making the patients more comfortable just because of the experience we have. But even then, I saw a patient today who I have no idea what he has in his pituitary. It looks very unusual. And that's what's so shocking. Mm-hmm. You know, you figure at some point you've seen everything. And I think we've seen probably 99% of things, but there's still 1% of mm-hmm. things that still show up that make you wonder. And that's what, you know, keeps you going. Yeah, every once in a while, we do get these bizarre things that we didn't expect, right? Yeah. <clears throat> we had that one young boy that had... Uh choroid plexus in his pituitary gland, which I'd never heard of before. And then another person that had a metastatic malignant brain tumor to the pituitary presenting as a pituitary lesion. So curveballs every once in a while. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's one of the advantages of of reading my own films is that, you know, we've seen so much unusual things, whereas most radiologists don't, that we can sort of fine tune the diagnosis much better. But again, it's, it's uh, I'd say half my clinic today was discussing the the differences in my opinion versus the radiologist's opinion. Yeah, I, I do that a lot as well, but I, I always tell people, I want Dr. Kunwar to see it. <laughs> if I'm not comfortable or confident with my reading, it's it always kick it up to you. I you know I used to call Chris Hess, who's our head of radiology and a tremendous neuro radiologist, and uh, but I, I I contact you <laughs> instead of him, but. Uh, so I really appreciate the fact that you're good at those films. 
Well, I think we're also at an unfair advantage because when you see things from the inside out, it's a lot easier to understand what the anatomy looks like. You know, with, with surgery, we've got the luxury of looking at the gland directly, looking at the cavernous wall, looking at the carotid artery, looking at the optic nerves and all of his vasculature. So it's much easier than to go back and um, take a look from the outside with an MRI scan and understand what what's going on. So radiologists sure. never have that you know that, that that opportunity to sort of see the inside out, which is I think why it also helps. I think it's another advantage of our program is that we both have seen so many patients in our practices. Um, you know, I'm on track now to have about 700 referrals this year. Uh, and many of them are non-surgical, but they still have MRIs that I have to review. And I've looked at a lot of films. You've looked at a lot of films, but we have this ability to offer patients two independent opinions. What do I think? What do you think? And then we work together to try to resolve any differences and, and plan for treatment. It's another, I think, advantage of most pituitary centers of excellence, yeah. say compared to saying an endocrinologist in the community and a neurosurgeon in the community, not only get people who are experienced with the the disease processes and doing the surgery, but you, you have people that work together. Whereas there, I, I get the sense that in private practice endocrinology, sometimes there's a lot of discord between the neurosurgeon and the endocrinologist that they may send the patient to because they're afraid the endocrinologist say no surgery or the endocrinologist is concerned the surgeon might operate when they don't need an operation performed or, or, or even that they, they uh, won't operate when it needs to be done. So uh, working together, being in a center where people work together, I think it's, you get better care in the long yeah. run. And I think that helps to, you know, it's a difference between, between being book smart and understanding, which there are a lot of people who are, I mean, most doctors have to be pretty smart to get to the stage they're at versus having the clinical mm -hmm. expertise of just seeing things and doing things, um, that help really help influence judgment skills, right? Um, before the surgery, yeah. during the surgery, and even after the surgery managing these patients, it's just, uh, Mm -hmm. And that's something that's intangible. And we've always been thinking about how do we pass that on to, uh, um, you know, residents and to new trainees, because that's our goal also is not only to, you know, you know to treat our patients, but to bring out the next generation of people who can continue to do, you know, and, and advance what, what we've done. Yeah. So that's always a little bit of a challenge. You know, th that's one of the things I wanted to touch on today is sort of medical decision-making, uh, clinical judgment, surgical decision-making, whatever you want to call it. But, you know, it does... It's something that I think that you can teach, but but some people don't seem to learn it. Um, I think that you have to see a lot of patients and ultimately, you know, use your association cortex and learn from your experiences to be able to to recognize sort of how to navigate a complex patient and work through your decision making and and make a decision after sort of which we call judgment. You know, making that decision, deciding what to do. Um, how did, how did you develop that as a surgeon? Do, because I think some people are born with it and I think you're probably born with it. It's probably your approach to everything in life. Uh, but, uh, tell us about your processes and what sort of, how you approach that topic of yeah, I mean, decision -making. I've always, you know, I've always, <laughs> it bothers my wife a lot because I've always played the devil's advocate. You know, any, any discussion is always, well, let's look at the other side and what does the other side see? And that's, I've always kind of used that also, also in medicine, but I think, you know, it goes back to, you know, again, the training, um, having Dr. Wilson sort of push the issue of do what's best for the patient has really been a driving force throughout my career. Everything we do in, in medicine and really in life to less degree is always a risk, you know, risk benefit balance. How do you balance the benefits with the risks involved? And we always want to keep thinking about that because 
and it changes, evolves, I think, for a lot of surgeons when they're younger versus when they're older, in the sense that when you're younger, you want to make the MRI scan looks great. You want to make sure you can cure every tumor you can get your hands on. But when you realize, you know, it's not just curing the tumor, and there are many ways to cure a tumor, whether it be with surgery right. alone, whether it be with surgery and medications, uh, medications alone, surgery and radiation therapy, and they all have their pluses and minuses. And then you got to look at the end, you know, the risks we tolerate are different when we're dealing with malignant tumors. Um, you know, if you've got a, 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 med- a, a cancerous lesion, we have to be aggressive in that situation. And we're, we're, we're maybe we'll tolerate a 1% risk or 2% risk of stroke or damage to the optic nerve because it's a life and death matter. Pituitary tumors generally, you know, majority of them, not all of them, most of them, not all of them, but most of them are really benign lesions and people will live a normal life if we can control mm-hmm. their hormones and get everything back to where they should be. So any risk is amplified. Um, you know, if someone, we, if we cause someone to have obvious things are stroke, you know, we never want someone to have a stroke. Unfortunately, knock on wood, our, our carotid artery injury rates in my program has been, you know, we've had none in the last 2000 plus operations. And so, and because a stroke is something that the patient has to live with the rest of their lives, they will, right. most of these patients will not die from their pituitary tumors. Their quality of life would be affected. And that's the other goal is to try to make their quality of life as best as possible. And that includes, you know, uh, preserving their vision. Number one priority we always have. We want to improve and preserve vision. But in my philosophy, which is a little bit different than a lot of other physicians is, and I know you agree with me here, is that we want to protect pituitary hormones. I mean, yes, we can replace every hormone the gland makes, but there's been very good studies, including the one in Lancet, Lancet in 2001, which showed even if we replace hormones, patients' quality of life are not as good as if their body can make it. So if someone comes to us with intact hormone function, I think we always think about what can we do and it may mean two steps instead of doing one step to try to not only cure the tumor, but preserve whatever hormones are still working. And if they're mm-hmm. gone because the tumors damaged them um, or it's an aggressive lesion, we have no choice. Then yes, we will go ahead and replace them. But the goal is to protect those hormones. Again, it's this risk benefit ratio. And, you know, this is where it's always evolving. We get surgeons who are, you know, younger and gung ho and have new tricks and new techniques and they think the cure rate could be higher, but you know, What's, what's an acceptable complication for someone who has a benign tumor who's going to live a full 30, 40-year life ahead of them, you know, causing permanent double vision, causing a stroke, causing optic nerve injury, and in my mind, even causing complete hormone loss, having to require and replace all those hormones. If we can avoid it, that really should be the goal because that's, that's the balancing of the game. And so sometimes I accept that surgically I may not be able to cure this tumor, but I still can cure it with surgery and gamma knife radiosurgery, for example. Now, as I mentioned, mm-hmm. we've been doing gamma knife radiosurgery for pituitary pathology from 1984, really, uh, 1986, and I've been doing it since 2001. And we know it's safety and efficacy in, in certain pathologies. So we'll actually sometimes combine the two. There are patients who we have who have recurrent disease, but some of the tumor is unresectable. Surgically, there's no way we can cure that tumor, even if we did a big operation. But yet it's too close to the, op- too close to the pituitary stalk or the pituitary gland where if we gave radiation therapy now, we know they're going to be at higher risk for losing that hormone function. So we can actually, I would, I would combine those two as to say, let's do surgery. Mm-hmm. Let's remove the tumor away from the gland. We know we can take tumor away from the gland and save whatever gland is there. Tumors do not invade into the pituitary gland. So we can protect that. So maybe remove 50% or 80% of the tumor that we can safely. And then the part that we know we can't cure at a later time point, use stereotactic radiosurgery, highly focused radiation therapy, which is focused just on the tumor without risking damage to the optic nerves 
or the gland or the pituitary stalk. And now we can actually do both, cure the tumor and protect the hormones that are still there. Versus a patient who has already lost all of his hormones and he has a case, a similar case like that, then there's no advantage to surgery. Then we'll go ahead and treat that patient if we can't cure him surgically with focused radiation therapy. But again, using focused radiation therapy whenever we can, being stereotactic radio surgery rather than the standard external beam radiation therapy. So those are some of the things that evolve over time because in the end I keep thinking, boy, what would it be if it was me? And what would I want? Um, or what would I want my mm-hmm. wife or for my kids? similar age and, and you got to think of every patient like that because again you're not dealing with just a disease you're not dealing with a tumor you're dealing with a person's life i remember early in my career at ucsf uh, which was my third faculty position and the, i mean i'll never forget the day that i thought this guy's different he doesn't think like the usual neurosurgeon he thinks more like me was the day that you were explaining to me your philosophy for operating on patients with cranial pharyngitis. It's much the same as what you just spoke about. Uh, yeah. you know, and, I, and I really appreciated that, and I've learned that that's the way you approach patients moving forward. Um, and um, that, that uh, do as much as you can without doing great harm approach to resecting those lesions and then cleaning it up with radiotherapy if required. Yeah. Uh, do, you, do you take the same approach to children as you do with adults? Uh, well, I mean, I would say two things. Or more so. For... The good news is, is I think a lot of patients we can cure, but not everyone. Uh, yeah. And if we can't right. cure them surgically, because there we can dissect it away from the gland, we can dissect it away from the optic nerves, and we can dissect it away from the artery. And if we can, then great, we can do that as one step. I think your question about kids is even amplified, because we will actually, you know, in these typical cases of craniopharyngiomas, which oftentimes arise off of the pituitary stalk, which we know you know, cure means causing panhypopituitarism or losing all the hormones that the gland can make. In kids, it's very critical because, and we've had patients, you know, we had a family from Arizona whose dad actually contacted me. This is a few years ago. I treated him when his his son was younger, about 11 and 12 years old, just about to start to go through puberty. And he had a, a tumor that was quite large pushing on the optic nerves, but attached, it was what we call a supracellar craniopharyngioma. So those are the more challenging ones because oftentimes they don't cause a lot of damage yet the treatment will cause a lot of damage. So we actually purposely did a subtotal resection. We cleaned out 80, 90% of the tumor, left the wall behind knowing there's no question this will come back. Got him through puberty. It wasn't until he was 17, 18 years old that he had a small recurrence of a cyst. And we went back in and just drained the cyst. And now when he was about 24 years old, he had another recurrence. And now we're gonna do, we did a definitive operation on it to, to cure him. So he was so happy because he became an athlete. He was at ASU, Arizona State University, became an athlete, had full development, lived his, you know, went through puberty and fertility with normal hormones. And then that, his dad was very appreciative of that because, of course, they also had the other option of, hey, we can take this whole tumor out and he's going to be panhypopit and we'll have to re- replace all of his hormones and he will have diabetes insipidus which going through college is tough <laughs> when you go on binge drinking episodes or oh, yeah. you're an athlete, it's hard to manage the, uh, the water balance with diabetes insipidus. And we were able to avoid all those uh, during his early years. Yeah. So that, that reflects medical decision-making, surgical decision-making and all of that. And, and, and I want to remind our listeners that Dr. Kunwar started out with saying, do what's best for the patient. And like myself, you believe in the individual. Uh, the the statistical information and populations and things like that are important. And when I was in my training, there was all this talk about practicing medicine based on evidence. So what we called evidence-based medicine. One of the things that I learned the deeper I got into faculty is that 
a lot of my patients don't fit a textbook definition, nor do they, nor is there a paper out there that we can rely on to decide what to do. And you have to sort of use your wits and your experience uh, and your anecdotal experience, if you want to use that term, uh, the, the experience you gain taking care of patients to do, to, to contribute to your medical decision making and treat everybody as an individual. I, I see a lot of endocrinologists on the endocrine Facebook group and other, other arenas where they're practicing guideline-based medicine because the Endocrine Society publishes a lot of guidelines on how to do this or that, and they'll stick to those guidelines. There's no thought required. We don't need endocrinologists if we're going to publish guidelines. Internists can do that, uh, but uh, the, the advantage of a specialist who has a lot of experience is that you get individualized care, not guideline-based care based on what a bunch of people Put, sat down and put together as a set of guidelines. And interestingly, a lot of times the, the stories I hear about these conferences, because I refuse, I've refused invitations to participate, is that nobody can agree anyways. Yeah, exactly. But somehow they write a paper that says, this is what you should do. But people will say, but I disagree with it. <laughs> so the people who wrote the paper. So it's kind of interesting. And, and I appreciate the fact that we both approach it as we need to do what's best for this patient. And, uh, uh, and devise uh, individualized treatment plans uh, and follow-up plans as well. Yeah, and um, I think guidelines, I understand them. Um, I agree. And then they're really designed because not every patient can go to uh, somewhere because of resources, location, geography, where they can get perhaps the best care. So you want to make sure at least they get adequate care. Yeah. That's always sort of the balancing game is that, fair enough. Um, right. You know, if you're someone stuck in the middle of nowhere and they don't have resources to go somewhere else or they have access to them, I think things are changing now. I mean, you know, COVID has really changed things with Zoom now. Of course, now we've got patients we can access all throughout the United States without having to worry about the cost of traveling and things like that. So I think that is going to actually help to normalize the level of care and bring it up. You know, so those are people who before didn't have the means to travel 300 miles or, you know, 3000 miles to, to see an expert now can, you know, using zoom and, and telemedicine. So my hope is that stays. We'll see. Yeah. I hope so too. Um, so the, um, the, the other problem I'm having with guidelines at the moment is that insurance companies are using them to influence our medical care. So as an example, we have a patient we've been worrying with for a couple of weeks now where uh, she has growth hormone deficiency, has failed the glucagon stimulation test, and then qualifies for growth hormone. All the medical literature talks about the fact that insulin-induced hypoglycemia is the gold standard test, but these other tests supplant that and are equally good, but we don't do the gold standard test. I haven't done one in over 20 years. But the insurance companies are refusing to allow people to go on growth hormone because they haven't had an insulin tolerance test, which is a very dangerous test to perform, very cumbersome, time-consuming risks to the patient. But they're using that guideline statement of the insulin-induced hypoglycemia being the gold standard test yeah. as the uh, reason to deny therapy. And this is where guidelines get us into problem trouble. We see this all the time. We have a patient with residual acromegaly, for example, we might want to use drug A, the drug guidelines say, try B first. And they say that because someone might have had a bias and said, you should try B first. And maybe they spoke for the company or whatever. Uh, and we try to use drug A, but they said, no, you have to use drug B because that's what's in the guidelines. Yeah. Um, yeah. Although I think insurance and, uh, will always find some reason to say 
Yeah, exactly. I don't, I don't really pay much attention to the surgical side of it. Do you have a lot of problem with them denying surgical procedures or for certain yeah. illnesses? Or are you? Yeah, I will say for brain tumors, it's less of an issue. But um, And I thought it would never be an issue, but it is starting to get an issue. It has been for a lot of the other things. I know my colleagues who do spine surgeries, um, there's a big you know, uh, uh, hiccup. And, and whereas before, probably 20 or 30% of documented evaluations um, uh, would be uh, not approved and you have to go through an appeal to perform a surgery. Um, now it's almost up to 30 to 40% and probably going to be 50% pretty soon. And, and oftentimes it's trivial things. It's things like uh, <coughs> I haven't documented the patient's gone to physical therapy and, and had had one injection. And even though it's in the records and even though it's documented, they say you don't. It's just the process for an appeal. And I will say we've always been able to get approval because, again, this is medically driven. So brain tumors, mm-hmm. it wasn't so much of an issue, although now we're getting kickbacks on MRI scans, I mean, which just blows my mind because this patient's got a brain tumor. We need to follow up with an MRI scan, and we have to uh, you know, file an appeal. So um, it's less of an issue, but it's getting, you know, for, for, other, for non-brain tumors, it's always been a problem. But now even with the brain tumors, I'm waiting for the point where they say, no, you can't do surgery on this brain tumor because they haven't gone through X, Y, and Z yet. I, it may become yeah. Yeah, I hope it doesn't. Uh, it's what what most people don't realize. It's extremely expensive and and arduous and time consuming for our staff to try to get things approved, even you know whether it be growth hormone or you know a, a somatostatin analog or a drug for Cushing's or whatever. We we actually the year before COVID uh, did an analysis of time spent by team members and figured out that it costs us our program about $110,000 a year in salaries to get approval for things for our patient. And I, I suspect now that's higher, probably a higher number. Uh, so it's, uh, and, and that's unreimbursed. It's not like we can charge the insurance company for trying to get the drug approved for them. You know, they, uh, but we do that on behalf of our patients. That's our commitment to, to total patient care and improving the lives of our patients and ensuring they get the therapy that they require. Yeah. What do you think your biggest uh, um, joy is in, in the practice of pituitary surgery? What do you what do you like? What really excites you? And you, you on your drive home, it's like, wow, what a good day! What are, tell me what sort of maintains that drive? And it's it's as my family knows so well. You know, my work is my passion and my love, and so it never seems like work. So. Every day I come home and, and pituitary surgeries amongst all the operations I do, you know, fit that criteria. It's, you know, whether it's to be a microadenoma and we're normalizing someone's hypersecretion and, you know, we see that postoperative hormone level drop almost immediately, you know, it's, it's, it's so rewarding. Probably the biggest thing is that, you know, they can get to go home and, and, you know, within usually, as you said, they go home the next day and then within, you know, three or four weeks are back to their normal lives again. I think I've always seen medicine, people always... A lot of my friends, unfortunately, where I live are, are, are investment bankers and in the financial industry, and they always think, oh, doctors just deal with old, uh, sick people. But, you know, the reality is, is people get sick. We don't cause them to get sick, or hopefully we don't. Um, they get sick for various reasons, and our goal is to get them back to normal life again. And that, that's such a rewarding thing to sort of say, patients always think they've got this trajectory of what they're going to be doing in life, and suddenly an illness like a pituitary tumor or Cushing's disease or acromegaly kind of diverts that. We have the opportunity to get them back onto another path that's more akin to what they had expected to be in, and that's an enormous reward. Um, and that goes on, you know, it's amplified because these patients live for so long. Again, we can get them back on their normal track. 
the other thing is, is these complicated cases. There's no question we, you know, someone has to do them, unfortunately. And when I look at these complicated cases where we take these tumors that are very, very large, very irregular. We had one last week where the tumor was actually invading into the brain, which is very unusual for pituitary tumors. And I was very worried about it. And I talked to the patient about the potential uh, um, risks involved with that and whether at some point we may have to come from above. But all the tumor came out and, you know, we got that little nubbin out and we use all our tricks. There's a gentleman who's... Uh, the, the tumor grew 90% upwards, which is challenging because we're coming from below. And so the window to take this tumor out was only about one centimeter, less than half an inch, but it was about a three inch, uh, two and a half inch tumor altogether, a four, three and a half centimeter tumor. And, you know, we got it all out and it all went so smoothly and went home the next day and you're like, God, why was I so worried about that case? Uh, but, you know, yeah. that's what drives you. You know, every case you worry about because you want to make sure it's as close to Again, from my mentor, perfection as possible. I don't think we ever can get perfection, but we want to get as close to as possible. And not only did all this tumor come out, that little nubbin that was invading into his brain, even that came out. And I was showing the resident where that little defect is. There's a supracellular capsule that's kind of caps off all tumors, and that's made up of thinned out gland with maybe some arachnoid behind it. And sure enough, as that capsule came down, I was able to show the resident where there was no gland there was just arachnoid and that's where it had perforated through the supercellular capsule and it was going into the brain but the arachnoid was still preserved so those are the things that you think wow that was that was <laughs> every once in a while i kind of have to pat myself on the back i don't do that very often but you kind of feel good about that now let me ask a sort of a, a devil's advocate question since you mentioned that term earlier so what about the the worst parts of it what do you not like about being a pituitary surgeon and the uh, is there anything? I mean, yeah. Uh, there's nothing about the surgery that I don't like. The frustrations we always get is, is, and again, you know, and I tell patients, you know, as you know, we do a lot of redos and, and, and that's perfectly fine. And I tell patients all the time, you know, I never fault a surgeon for leaving tumor behind. We can always go back in and take the tumor out, um, the rest of it out. It, it's not ideal, but, uh, you know, as I can, as you know, I use an analogy of driving cars uh, as that, you know, there are a lot of good car drivers yeah. out there, which are neurosurgeons. Pituitary surgery is like driving a car at 150 miles per hour. And if a surgeon you know, doesn't do that often, then they're going to stop at 100, 110 miles per hour and leave some tumor behind and not maybe get a cure. That's much better than them trying to push that 150 miles per hour and getting a CSF leak with meningitis or getting a, a vascular injury and massive bleeding or stroke because those are things we can't fix with another surgery. Tumor left behind, I can always go back in, and it's always actually it's been, it was challenging, and now it's actually enjoyable because I get to look at the anatomy and see why they might have left tumor behind the first time around. But I never fault surgeons for that because I think it's better for them to stop and you know not push their limits. What gets frustrating is is that when sometimes those limits are pushed, and and you know uh, um, and we we're, you know our goal. I tell the store we're having a meeting next week about how do we develop a center of excellence in a competitive environment of, of a pituitary program center of excellence. And one of the things my comment was is that we're not competing against each other. I think all pituitary surgeons who are experienced are not competing against each other. We're working as a team to give provide the best quality of care possible. We're trying to compete against the norms of insurance companies and, and patients who may not have access to where they're getting surgeries done by centers that don't do a lot of these tumors. There's been so much data and, and it's been proven over and over again that with greater numbers of cases done, the outcomes are better, the risks are lower. And you know, with those that bar is getting higher and higher now where really I think the complication rates for these tumors should be less than 1% for almost everything as much as possible. And so that's really should be our goal, not a 3% risk, not a 5% risk, but really a less than 1% risk if we can get there. 
So at other sites, so we know what the national rep, you know uh, rates are. They're anywhere from three percent to five percent to seven percent, or even as high as twelve percent in some studies. And that's when you think, gosh, that's not where we should need to be. At. It's not fair for patients. And so really, we're not you know as pituitary surgeons, we're not competing against each other. We're competing against a system that doesn't allow you know patients to go to these centers of excellences and get their care where they need to be. Yeah, and maybe patients aren't aware of the fact that there are centers of excellence that they can choose because they're you know they see a local doctor, they're referred to the community hospital neurosurgeon who takes them to surgery, and ultimately that patient makes it to us because they find us on the internet. So it's a real problem that you know sometimes we're people's first choice, and and sometimes we're their second choice. They come for for bailout treatment of acromegaly cushions or what have you. I, I completely uh, agree. I think a lot of the times that you're right, it is just uh, you get referred and you don't understand the, the nuances of a specialty operation and that uh, the differences it can make. That's one issue. The second issue is the delay in diagnosis where, you know, that's always been frustrating where you saw, you know, in hindsight, it's always 2020. So it's always hard to look back and say, well, obviously this was because of the tumor. The symptoms you had five yeah. years ago, four years ago, but <laughs> But how do we not make that so obvious? How do, how do we make that obvious yeah. at that time? So then we can get these tumors when they're smaller and not invading into the cavernous sinus or having wrapping around critical structures. Because of course the outcomes are so much better long-term if we can catch these earlier. You know, we mentioned this concept of pituitary centers of excellence, but one of the things that I found troubling within the past year is that I saw, I saw an article and reviewed it briefly sort of sort of a garbage article, but the data you can't disagree with. And uh, well, I can disagree with, I'll tell you what I mean. Um, it was looking at about eight, what they called centers of excellence for pituitary disorders. Mm -hmm. I would think of maybe two or three of those as centers of excellence. So I don't know how these other five or six were lumped into this. And the results of their study were that after primary therapy, 40, only 45% of patients with Cushing's are in remission. Hmm. I mean, like, that's certainly not our experience. No, no. You know, uh, to, so to me, it's like, why are these others included? Why are the results so poor relative to our personal experience at our institution? So maybe we need to compete with some of these other centers of excellence yeah, because... Uh, uh, but I think that it's so easy to get the moniker now of Center of Excellence and, you know, Pituitary Network Association will talk about so. these things, or what's a Center of Excellence, and a lot of people get included in a list of a Center of Excellence when they're really not. You know, they have an interest in the disease, but they don't have the experience to and qualify as experts. Done, yeah, no, I agree. And a lot of what's done is just marketing, right? It's just a matter of just because you yeah. say you're a Center of Excellence, just because you say you're, you're, you're the best and you can do that with the Internet and social media doesn't qualify you as those components. And again, this is where education exactly. is tough as a patient, someone who's got, you know, a lot of uh, videos and, 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 you know, media publications out there doesn't necessarily mean they're the best. You really have to, you know, yeah. always, you know, for, 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 you know, we do a lot of physicians, obviously for both, you know, uh, pituitary tumors and some of the other surgery we do. And one of the things they always ask is the anesthesiologist or ask the nurses, Hey, who's the best? Because they see their outcomes. They see how the yeah. surgeon behaves in the operating room and, and when they get stressed out and when they don't get stressed out. And so that's a great reference, but patients don't have that access. They just see the, the news information out there. And I agree. I think we were kind of been spoiled. I think, you know, you realize this when you step out of UCSF and or step out of our program, we've been spoiled because we do so many of these cases and both for you and your yeah. ability to sort of diagnose and tease apart these nuances of hormones and for the surgical outcomes of looking at the cure rates and the complication rates 
but there's a difference between you know the, the top one, two, three uh, 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 level versus the you know the twenty and thirty, which is still good. Again, I think back yeah. to like Wimbledon. You know, there's a lot of uh, you know, the top twenty tennis players can all are amazing tennis players, but there's always the number one who's just phenomenal. Yeah, that's and right. Yeah, number one will say the number twenty guy is ah, he's an okay player, but that number twenty guy can probably beat all my friends that I know who play tennis, and so it's yeah. always a relative term. Yeah, exactly. I like to think of, and you know, I've been doing this for 30 years now, and I've met a lot of neurosurgeons at my three institutions and seen a lot of patients that have been elsewhere and come to me for one reason or another. And I've sort of developed what I call a tier system. You know, there's yeah. the tier one, tier two, and tier three, pituitary surgeons. And I, you know, I, I would have surgery by a tier one surgeon, yeah. only about two or three of you who are that yeah. tier one, in my opinion. There's a lot of tier two surgeons who are good surgeons, they're writing papers, they're going to be better in another five to 10 years. Uh, and then there's some tier three surgeons who maybe have a pretty good shot at it if they focus. Tier four, five, and six, I wouldn't let them touch any of my patients, but they're still out there doing cases, you know, at academic centers, you know, and that's, that's where I think we still have some work to do to help bring people to the best. My, my philosophy is get people to the best person that they can see to yeah. take care of their, their situation uh, uh, at an institution or in a region or what have you. And Lewis, and, you know, to your uh, point, that what's interesting is some of these, I would call tier three or tier four programs, I agree with you, are still doing a large volume. And, and again, you know, it's, it's, uh, this is where it's always hard. And, you know, I, my younger life, I started fighting this, uh, this issue of marketing and everything else. And in the end, my philosophy has always been is let the, let the data, you know, tell itself, let word of mouth tell itself, yeah. you know, and, um, because it's uh, um, it's tough for patients because patients don't have the same insight that physicians have. They could have what's available online, what's available in the outcome, and that drives it. You know, the, an example of this in neurosurgery realm is the Laser Spine Institute. You know, it was an institute that was set up by a, a real estate mogul who thought, boy, it'd be great to do that, and they did very well. They expanded extremely rapidly, had a, had very poor outcomes, but they were doing a lot of cases. And of course, they never used a laser. <laughs> there was no laser in spine surgery. But the title, the name was Laser Spine Surgery. And patients thought, oh my God, this must be the latest technology, latest techniques. And they'd flock to them. And uh, of course, that led to multiple lawsuits eventually. And eventually, they went bankrupt and shut down. But that's after 12 years of just rapid wow. growth. And you know, that's the, ex the pinnacle example of what marketing can do and how they can bias you know, public opinion purely by not science, but by you know, social media and by um, advertising. That's what we want to, you know, how do you prevent that from happening? And that's where some of these tier three, tier four programs have become very busy, not because of their yeah. outcomes, but because of sure. their components. I think another contributing factor is health plan. Um, yeah. You know, uh, you may recall that probably about 2008, I did an analysis of all the discharge diagnoses for pituitary surgical procedures in in the state of California and found that we were doing about 25% of the cases in California. Yeah. There was one, ten, we were the busiest program in the state, uh, but there was one entity that, that did more and that was Kaiser, yeah. but that was spread over 10 institutions and about 40 surgeons. So right. even though Kaiser did more, the, the relative experience of your neurosurgeon is minimal, probably not doing enough to sort of meet the standards or to be able to call themselves a pituitary surgeon. Yeah. Uh, that affects care. That's an important uh, uh, in, indicator of outcome for, for the, the lack of experience. And we, we've seen all the papers that talk about the 
improved outcomes, the more cases you've done, the less morbidity and mortality, even uh, the, 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 the more outcomes you've done or procedures you've done. And so when I look at that, it's like, why won't Kaiser send those patients to us to get better care, yeah. to have less complications and less long-term overall health costs, which improve the financial status of the institution. So. Yeah. And in fact, we, you know, we used to do some Kaiser patients long, long time ago that closed off in 2003, 2004. Um, and, and we even showed our cost was cheaper. We thought this would be a cost. And so all the other insurance, other HMOs, we've been able to show them, Hey, our cost profile is so much lower because our, Hospital stays lower, complication rates are so much lower, that has a huge impact in overall cost. And they've accepted that, but Kaiser hasn't. And, you know, I think there's, and what's interesting is we've, as you know, we've operated in a few Kaiser uh, uh, right. patients who are always the physicians or once, you know, yes. a team member. Like, so yeah. for them, that's okay. Kind of see like Congress. For Congress, Medicare is okay for everybody else, but for Congress, they want their own private insurance. And it's like, okay, that's interesting. <laughs> Yeah, but, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, but I think, you know, and, and you're right. It's, I think the focus for Kaiser, which they do very well is care for the masses, you know, and, and we always have yeah. to, you know, this is an argument for the world really is, is do you focus on preventative care, which is key and critical and you, you know, is it better to care for a thousand people or care for that one? And if that one is you, your perspective is different. You know, if you've got that rare disease, exactly. you've got that, uh, uh, even pituitary tumor, you know, even though it's not that rare and it's a little benign tumor, the complications associated with treatment can be devastating: stroke, blindness, uh, double vision, and or death. Um, I read a recent report looking at mortality, and I was shocked. You know, this is actually a, a study I just reviewed. This is uh, published. Well, I don't think it'll get published. I don't think the quality of data was great, but they were looking at three different centers with three different volumes. At the highest, at the lowest volume, the the mortality was one point seven percent, and the lowest, the highest volume, the mortality is 07 percent. And to me, I mean, in my practice, we've had no deaths in over two thousand five hundred, two thousand eight hundred cases. I mean, really, it's, the mortality yeah. should be point zero one percent. You know, it's never zero. Exactly. Right. There's always anesthesia yeah. risk. There's always right. even surgical risk. But that was kind of shocking to me to accept a mortality of two percent, one point seven percent. I didn't understand that. Um, yeah, I wouldn't accept that if I were the but again, health, but that goes back plan to, administrator. Yeah. This wasn't in the U.S., but in, uh, abroad, again, it goes back to, well, we've got to divvy up health you know, like Kaiser, we've got to divvy up health care. We try to provide, you know, baseline services to the most people or really, really high service for a handful of people. And that's where it's a tough situation. You can argue both ways. Of course, if you're that patient, yeah. if you're, you want the best person and the lowest complication. So you can live the rest of your life, you know, as normal as you can. Yeah, certainly we don't want to imply to the audience or our listeners that Kaiser doesn't have good doctors because they're some of the best doctors out there. They're all very well trained. They only hire top notch people. And I've met several surgeons at Kaiser do different types of surgical procedures and ICU doctors, and they are the best. It's just that the experience you have to do a large volume of cases and have to do these cases regularly to be good. It doesn't mean you're not a great surgeon if you can't do pituitary disease. It means you haven't done enough cases. And, and, and there, there's, you, there's you haven't developed that clinical judgment we're talking about. So. Yeah. And there are outcomes data for like common things, cardiac bypass surgery, knee replacement therapy, hip replacement. These are common operations they do incredibly well with. So again, yeah. for the mass, the large volumes, they do really, really well at preventive and post-operative care and intraoperative care. But it's that you know, the pancreatic cancer, the pituitary tumor, these rare diseases where then it becomes problematic because um, 
as you mentioned, it's uh, it's spread around a long, large number of surgeons. It's not just one surgeon focusing on that. Yeah. Well, this has been a very interesting uh, conversation thus far. Do you have any final words you want to say, final reflections on your career, or anything you want to tell our yeah. listeners today? Yeah, I, don't, I think I would never change anything I, I did. Um, people always ask me, if you didn't go to neurosurgery or do pituitary surgery, which would you do? And I'm like, I can't think of anything else I would ever want and be as happy with. And I think, you know, to, to my fault, you know, as you know, my, both my daughters are going into medicine and they both want to be neurosurgeons. And so that I think makes me realize, I think I've been too happy at home with what I do, but it's, it's, a, it's a tough, it's a tough course. It's a tough rind, but you know, again, if you love it, it's not work anymore. And, and, you know, pituitary surgeries and pituitary pathologies, you, you know, or, or if I can do that five days a week, I do that. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, at some point, maybe that'll be my, my, my swan song of just doing pituitaries and nothing else. But uh, uh, it's a great practice. Yeah. There's still things we can make better. Uh, I'm still, even though, you know, I've been doing thousands of these operations, I think that we, there's still room for improved technology, improved mm-hmm. medical therapies, um, improved intraoperative therapies we can do. And that's kind of exciting. It's what keeps driving you to sort of say, again, I think we're getting it. I will say, as you get closer to the top of the mountain, it gets more steep. And so I think the improvements, I think yeah. if you look at the last 20 years, we've had so many huge steps of improvements. I think we'll keep getting more, um, but it's going to take maybe a little bit longer, a little more effort. Yeah, well, it's interesting. Uh, I What I hope to see is probably another, let's say, four years medical school, seven years of training, <laughs> Uh, maybe that's when you start training one of your daughters to take over the baton of the pituitary program. Exactly. So I don't know if I want uh, them to go through this hell, but, but again, if they go it, they love it. it's not, it's great. Yeah. It's a great field. Yeah. I argue. Sure. Exactly. So, well, thanks again for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Uh, Thank you, and, for everything uh, you do. all right, we'll talk soon, um, about a few things, uh, have a good rest of your day and everybody. Thanks for listening. And we'll let uh, Jorge give us the send-off here. Thank you for joining us. You have been listening to Live Talk, an exclusive production from Pituitary World News. Pituitary World News is a non-profit organization supported by a variety of organizations, foundations, and from people like you. We encourage you to participate by joining us to spread the word about pituitary disease. And if you'd like to donate, please go to pituitaryworldnews.org and click on the Donate button. Thank you, and thank you for listening.